LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Group Answers Podcast, a weekly show designed to resource, train, and encourage small group leaders. Each episode considers current trends and resources, as well as timeless truths and methods of discipleship. It's hosted by Brian Daniel and Chris Surratt. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Group Answers Podcast. I'm Brian Daniel with Chris Surratt. Chris, hey. it's another week. We're feeling pretty good. Springtime is is here. I mean, we are post-March 21st. We are steaming towards the longest day of the year. I won't go so far as to say the sun is out here, but I'm feeling pretty good about things. Yeah, I, I you know, there's a big push right now to keep daylight savings times permanent. And I didn't realize this, Brian, until I just read it, I think yesterday, that it actually, uh, Richard Nixon tried to make it happen in, I think, 1974 or 73, something like that. And they made it permanent and families complained because they were walking their kids to the the bus stops in the complete darkness. And so it only lasted for a few months and then they switched back to it. But I am still an, in favor of keeping this permanently if we possibly can. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I would like that. And it's no wonder that they've never made a movie out of that Nixon that Nixon story <laughs> you just told. That would make a terrible movie. That didn't make hey, the highlights, no. <laughs> Speaking of daylight savings, how's life on the farm? You guys settled in? Life on the farm is is great. Yeah, uh, we're we're loving it. Um, you know, being able to see stars for the first time in years is an amazing feeling as you look out into the into the sky and then hearing chickens crow and and uh, all the fun stuff. I have to mow it today, which I have not done yet. So we'll see how that goes. Well, best wishes. Yes, thank you. We are. At least I am. And Chris, I think you are too. Really excited to have celebrity guests today. We don't often have celebrity guests, but we do today. Karen Swallow Pryor, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor is joining us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pryor. Hello. It's great to be with you. She is looking very professorial in uh, her Zoom quarters. Dr. Pryor is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is the author of many books. I will go with a few of them here. Booked Literature and the Soul of Me, which is a great title. Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist. On Reading Well, another great title. Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Dr. Pryor is the co-editor of the Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues, and has contributed to numerous other books. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things. I'm not even going to try and say that because uh, I've got a bad habit of mispronouncing words. Relevant, Think Christian, The Gospel Coalition, Religion News Service, Books and Culture, and other places. I hope no one could tell that I was reading that. And a prolific social media person. Oh, yeah. Which is yeah. where I, I'm a huge fan, by the way. Is that okay to say? 
a huge fan because I because I think I would be too. My biggest claim to fame, Twitter. <laughs> you can follow Dr. Pryor on Twitter at how would they find you? Is it Notorious KSP? Is that That's is that what you tell well, that, people? <laughs> that well, it's it's at KSPRIOR, just plain at KS Pryor. And then the notorious comes in with like you can put your put a name on it on your handle. Well, also congratulations on your most recent books, Frankenstein: A Guide to Reading and Reflecting, and Jane Eyre with the the same concept. So, welcome to the show. Thank I you. I think as a first order here, uh, tell us about the books that just released. As well as Sense and Sensibility and Heart of Darkness, and uh, that you, that are already in print. Uh, how you came up with this concept? What? Why did you write them? And a little bit about the process of developing the manuscript. Well, the first thing I have to say is that I did not come up with the concept. I was approached by Lifeway B and H Publishing with the idea. So. Go, you guys. <laughs> um, so I was approached with the idea of selecting a number of classic works of literature and doing just what we've done in this series, which is to to reprint the texts themselves. These are works that are in the public domain, and you can fi- find oodles of, of various copies of them on Amazon and other places. Most of them are pretty cheap and awful. Um because they're in the public domain and anyone with a printer can print them. But we wanted to produce beautifully bound volumes of these classic works that were edited by me, um, you know, which means having little footnotes, not not scholarly ones, but notes here and there to indicate what some archaic word might mean to make the, the reading easier. But most importantly, to include um, introductions and reflection questions for people who might be reading the works for the first time or those who are returning to them and, and never got to study them in a college classroom. So in essence, these books are like taking a, a college class with me. Um, Brian and I are both, I would say, literature nerds. I don't know if that's that's a good thing to say, but um, we definitely it is. We definitely are. We were both English <laughs> in majors. this context for sure. In this context, <laughs> yes. And uh, my daughter, I, I told you before that my daughter is uh, about to get her English degree and just went to England actually last year to uh, follow in the footsteps of Jane Austen and kind of live her life. And she got a little bit of a grant to do that, so she could she, she could write her thesis on on uh, Jane Austen. So obviously, just it's kind of a big part of our lives. So that's one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of what you do. But I'd love to hear from you. What role does your faith have in the way that you view these classical works? That is such a good question, because this is a big part, actually, of my my testimony as a Christian and as a professor, because I grew up loving books and reading classic works of literature and reading not so classic works of literature. I read everything. Um, we became an English major like your daughter and then went into a PhD program to study English. All the time I was a Christian, but I had never really integrated my Christian faith with my love of literature. I actually saw them um, in tension with one another and didn't see how they could be reconciled because I wasn't taught how to do that. Um, and so it was wasn't until I was pretty pretty much done with my with my PhD program and I was um, looking at uh, 
teaching at a Christian institution. I had become a, 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 an administrator in a Christian school by that time. And I was encountering this idea of, of integration of biblical worldview. And I essentially had to re-educate myself. I had to, when I finished my PhD, took a job at an evangelical university and began to teach, I realized I did not know how to teach literature from a biblical worldview. So I read everything I could find on it, which wasn't that much. Um, I, I made for myself and my students a list of the biblical basis for the study of literature. It was so basic and pedantic, but I needed to do this for them and for me. And then over the next couple of decades of teaching have just learned how to sort of integrate that those ideas into the way I think about these works, the way I teach them. And uh, more importantly, and, and I think this is where I, where I really w- am passionate about this project. It, it's not just, uh, once we learn how to think biblically about one book or one subject, we can do that with more easily with all things, which is what we should be doing. Uh, and so there's a model in these books, I hope, for how to think biblically about everything. So uh, reading and reflecting um, is in the subtitle of this, and it feels like – I haven't seen one of these yet. Uh, I need to grab a copy because it sounds like a little bit like a Norton edition. It would just be from – just you would write the introduction and you've got the notes, which is a fascinating concept. So whoever came up with it. Great job. So uh, these books are reading and reflecting. As a non-trader conversation today, it might be helpful for us to get an understanding of what you mean by reflecting, particularly as it might relate to personal discipleship, spiritual growth, and even prayer. So um, they're a little bit different. For, if anyone is familiar with the Nortons, the Nortons um, do contain an introduction, um, but they also can cl- contain uh, critical essays, which I don't have, but I have some, I um, note some of them. So uh, what I've done in the introductions is to include no spoiler, true introductions to the works for anyone who hasn't read them so that they know something about the author and the historical background and the major themes. And then there's the, also a section on reading this work as a Christian today, um, which begins the reflection. But because I was, I committed myself to not including any spoilers in the introductions, because by the way, I, when I teach works like this and I have for um, a long time, um, the volumes that I use for my students in my classroom will also in, often include spoilers in the introductions. And sometimes I forget to tell my students, don't read the introduction because it spoils the plot. And so that's how I came t- upon this idea of not doing that in my volumes. But I still, you have to deal with major events and um, developments in the works. And so after each major section in the works, I have discussion questions. And then at the end of the entire work, reflection questions. And these are questions that are, you know, some of them are just sort of simple. Um, They are the kinds of questions that I would ask in the classroom to kind of focus the reader's attention on important themes or symbols or events. But there are also questions that these works demand us to think about. So this is the difference between, say, a work 
by Stephen King, who I, I love Stephen King. I love to listen to his books on audio audible. When I go running, they're very entertaining and uh, suspenseful, but they don't really invite us to reflect about the big questions of human life, the human condition and universal um, problems and dilemmas. But works of literary fiction do that. Um, and But sometimes we need help in seeing how they do that because they are works of art and they are, you know, they tell the truth slant rather than directly. And so the reflection questions are designed to help readers think through these questions um, to point them in the right direction. Because sometimes just knowing what the right question to ask is, uh, knowing what the right question is, is half the battle or more. So that's what I do with these questions is to provide a model and direction for thinking reflectively, which is what great works of art, including literature, invite us to do. Most of our listeners are involved in, in some degree with Bible studies, and I am sure that a lot of them have done book studies or book groups as well. And sometimes it's a combination. You're doing a Bible study that's based on a, a book written about a book of the Bible or something like that. And I'm sure that you've been in and out of Bible studies and, and book clubs for most of your Christian life. And based on that experience for you, what elements comprise a great group Bible study or book study group for you? Well, I definitely have opinions on that. <laughs> um, and I, I think that the studies, and I'm probably going to step on some toes here, so I guess I apologize. Um, anything that involves a workbook where you fill in the blank, um, I think is not a good way to approach Bible study or really any kind of, of learning. Um, I think when we are guided with good questions that, that, that aren't entirely open-ended because anyone can throw a question out there that leads down a lot of rabbit trails, but well-designed questions as Socrates famously used in his, his dialogues um, that help a reader or, you know, a, a, a student or uh, a, a scholar, you know, a, a reader of the Bible to learn how to ask the right questions and, and to discover through the right question, um, the right answer, because there's something about, uh, uh, and, and much research supports this re research in cognitive science, research in um, education, and even more recently, uh, a lot of analysis of QAnon theories. Um, scholarship shows that when we discover something for ourselves, we actually, there's actually a dopamine hit that comes along um, that is a, a reward. And also it, we retain that information lo longer and, and we apply it more. So I think asking good questions um, to help in that self-discovery and uh, questions that aren't just fill in the blank, like here's the answer. Um, so that's again why how I've designed these series, the series which is a, about literature. But I think um, Bible studies work well the same way, where you have someone who knows the material very well, um, can ask good questions and facilitate good discussion that that allows a few rabbit trails now and then, but really keeps the focus on going deeper and wider um, with the material. 
Chris, it just seems we're all English types here, and some of us very much <laughs> PhD <laughs> English types, literature types. It just seems like when you get into, and Karen, that's an important distinction to make is what I would call consumptive literature with like what someone might call a, a great book or something more canonical. But in that genre of writing, you talk about the well-crafted question, and that's a value of ours. Uh, I'm on the publishing side. That's something that we put a lot of attention to as well. And people don't realize that it is a demanding enterprise to do that well. You really have to know the content to craft the, the right question to drive a conversation or to get people where you feel like they need to get. But it seems like in the great works, it does create a context for maybe a more earnest pursuit of truth. Um, I guess that's the way I would put it. There's lots of ways I guess you could say that. But uh, with that in mind, your reading and reflecting guides emerged, as I understand it, from your own experiences, like in book clubs or reading groups. So I think it would be interesting um, for people to hear or our audience to hear more about how like these conversations that we're describing might fit into a larger discipleship ministry and how secular literature might be an entry point for even non-believers and an effective tool for the church as well. Can you tell us what you've learned over the last few years as you've kind of, it sounds like taken this on or at least taken this on at a more, at a higher level or higher level of intensity? Well, most of my experience is drawn on my classroom teaching, but of course, because I'm have been teaching for over two decades in Christian classrooms, I consider that to be you know, discipleship. Um, and so part of the, developing a well-crafted question comes from years of learning what kinds of questions students tends to tend students tend to have, what might be the stumbling blocks for them or what might be the points of confusion. And so I bring all of that knowledge in as well as just sort of knowing, anticipating what the common questions are and uh, what the, the tricky um, issues are. And so knowing your audience is essential and that takes listening, that takes learning from them, that takes anticipating what their questions might be. And so I think th the things that I've learned in the literature classroom about audience, about questions, about stumbling blocks are things that apply directly to discipleship. Um, we need to know the people that we are discipling. We need to know what their questions are. We also need to know, um, and I, again, have, drawing on years of experience, we need to know how those questions change because I've seen several generations of students now, or depending on how you count generations, but and I have seen that their questions and their and their strengths and their weaknesses change as the culture around us changes. Um, and so I think, you know, I did have the opportunity before COVID hit to, to lead a book study of, um, Sense and Sensibility, one of the books in the series with, with my church as part of a sort of a community outreach where we held the book club off of the church um, campus and, you know, in the community. And that was a wonderful way to sort of combine um, 
combine a, a book study with discipleship and outreach because again these works of literature are great because they tap into universal themes and so that's why I've included in in the questions not just liter questions about the literature but also um, applications that we can find in in the biblical text and so sort of integrating uh, those things together. So if somebody wanted to do this and maybe start a reading club with the goal of, of reaching discipleship um, in mind, what advice would you give them? Are there, are there values that you would be sure to stress to somebody as they start this? Well, again, the, the books that are in the series um, are a good way to start, but I, I actually hope I'm not just trying to sell books here um, because I hope that, that this these books provide a model for how to do this really with anything. And so I've highlighted the themes that I think are important to Christians in particular, but also to any reader of these texts. And once, you know, it is kind of, it's a skill. Reading literary works, like anything else, is a skill that can be developed. Uh, there's actually even a great book by um, Thomas Foster called How to Read Literature Like a Professor. Um, and it, it, you know, and, and it, once you sort of get a hang of the way that literary artists use language and the way there are common symbols and motifs, it's not that they're the same in all works of literature, but you do become more familiar with them. And again, they, these things are repeated because they reflect larger um, human concerns and questions. Um, and so a book like this can give a model. Uh, if you use it, you can apply. Uh, eventually, you could do this on your own with any work of literature, I would think, or even any other sort of cultural artifact. Um, there are other books out there that do what I've done with literature with works of art or with movies. Um, and so I think that, you know, all of these wonderful works of art that, that are out there in the culture are wonderful opportunities for Christians to engage with in a biblical way. Um, and in doing that, to, in delighting in these works, also sh showing and teaching others how to delight in these works as Christians and thinking biblically. And again, um, I, th I think it's worth reiterating, we're not talking about a replacement for Bible study. In fact, uh, I guess just to, just to be clear, these would be the word that I used was entrees. And like Dr. Pryor said, I think I think sometimes as believers, yeah, I think that's right. I think sometimes as believers, we forget how difficult it is to pick up the Bible and just start reading it. I was talking with someone one time, and and this person said, hey, I've started reading the Bible. I'm like, great, what book do you start with? And he looked at me puzzled and said, well, Genesis. You just started on page one. Mm -hmm. And you can do that, and that's fine. Um, I mean, it's great to get people in the Word, but studying the Bible is a different enterprise, and there, there are layers. I mean, not just the supernatural, but there's the historical, uh, there's the prophetic, there's the genres, there's the wisdom literature, just understanding it. So what we're, what we're talking about here is a way, I think, to add a layer of understanding, to be able to think more critically, to be able to helps you draw more from the text than we otherwise would. And these are just some ways that you can do it. And Dr. Pryor, if I'm hearing you right, this would be a way, this would be like in addition to, or maybe I wouldn't call it a new member class, but maybe there's a peripheral within the church that would be more easily engaged this way as a first step to get them into a deeper 
more more committed devotional Bible study. Yeah, I mean, we forget sometimes because we are immersed in in the Bible um, that the Bible is a literary text. And as you said, we've learned, many of us have kind of learned how to read it over the years, especially if we were brought up in the church. And so literary texts, classic works of literature are also literary and, and, and they use language in many of the same ways. And we are, we're really entering a post-literate culture. I mean, we've had a good 500 years of rising and increasing literacy, um, thanks to the printing press and the Protestant Reformation. But we're now entering a culture where it, people are not as able to engage with thick, rich texts as they once were. And the Bible is the thickest and richest text of all. And so if we are training and um, and encouraging people to sort of delight in the the art of language and learning how to read literary language well, um, then we're actually teaching them the same skills that they need to read and study the Bible. So Chris, I know we've got to wrap up, but I just got one quick question for you. As the small group pastor for something like this, what would be your first step in making something like this available? I mean, apart from someone to lead it, I mean, how would you promote it? How how do you think you would wrap this up and present it to the church or the group ministry? Yeah, I think it's a great, great opportunity, especially for churches that offer affinity type groups where it's less directed on, you know, doing this study, this Bible study. It's more about what are you passionate about? I mean, I'm thinking about my daughter, my, you know, my 22 year old daughter would love a group like this to talk about classic literature that leads to, you know, uh, gospel conversations with, within that. And so it's just offering it as a resource or as an idea. Cause I think most people will, will, will not think of that. They will not think that I can do this with a group of my friends and it can be sanctioned by the church and, and, and we can lead to discipleship conversations through it. And so I would encourage you to pick up these books and, and uh, offer it as an idea, as, as a possibility for somebody to do a group. Cause I just don't think that it's, it's thought of very often. Dr. Pryor, you've got Heart of Darkness, Sense of Sensibility, Jane Eyre, and Frankenstein. What might be around the corner? Have you thought about that yet, or is it in the works? Oh, yes. These get <laughs> planned way hard, way ahead of time. So the, the last two entries in the series that will be out a year from now, um, Lord willing, because I, I have to write them, um, are Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy and The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, wow. So, Okay. And where can listeners pick up copies of these guides? Where can we find you online? Well, they can pick them up anywhere books are sold. The best price is at lifeway.com. And they can find me at my uh, website, karenswallowprior.com, and also on Twitter, KS Pryor. Once again, thank you for being with us. That's going to wrap up this episode of the Group Answers Show. And I would say maybe a year from now, we can come back and do this again. I would love it. Thanks for listening. Uh, Once again, we encourage you to subscribe and follow and comment and like. All those things are wonderful for podcast hosts. Until next time, this is Brian and Chris. Thanks for being with us.